Hi, I'm Andy Pallane and this is The Service Design Show. In The Service Design Show, we talk to people that are shaping the service design field. We talk about the current state of the industry, exciting new developments and the challenges up ahead. My guest in this episode is Andy Pallane. Andy is currently the design director at Fjord in Australia and he is the co-author of the book called Service Design from Insights to Implementation. For the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be discussing a few topics, among them the fractal nature of service design and what service design can learn from the movie industry. So if you're interested in how to design services from end to end, be sure to stick around till the end of the episode. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, you're the second one uh, from Australia, actually, uh, being on the show. Well, it's uh, middle of the night here, so it's looking a bit kind of dingy yeah. and dark. If we did it the other way around, it'd be more nice and sunny and you'd be all in the, <laughs> in the dark. Maybe the next time. Andy, um, you've been quite uh, uh, active in the service design field for quite a while. But do you actually recall your very first memory of service design? I do actually. So uh, I have to sort of rewind the history a bit, um, a little bit. So I was mainly working doing interaction design and teaching interaction design, and um, and I go my that, my history in that goes back right to the early nineties. And I think I'd often thought in this way. Um, I remember doing some work back in the nineties for um, a bank, a major UK bank, when I was at Razorfish, and thinking about the design of of services. Mm -hmm. And then when I was um, teaching at the College of Fine Arts here, I was the head of School of Media Arts here in Australia uh, back in the 2000s, we were restructuring the faculty. And I remember being struck by the fact that a lot of people were sitting around uh, the meeting table reading bits of paper out at each other. Mm. And I was thinking, well, at least half of us are designers here and the rest are artists. Why aren't we up at the whiteboard designing? This yeah. is a design problem. Yeah. And I started thinking about the design of organizations. This is around 2000, 2001. And in that company that I had worked, I'd, I'd set up a company years ago, or co-set up a company called Antirom in the very early 90s. And a guy that I uh, worked with us then was a guy called Ben Reason. Mm. Mm. And anyway, in one trip back to London, I dropped by to uh, say hi to Ben in the studio. And I think I met Lavrans and also Chris there. I think I met Chris and Ben. And um, Ben said, well, we're doing this thing called service design. We just set up this company about a year ago. And as he started describing the kind of work they were doing, I was like, oh, all right. So that way of thinking has a name. And I think that's quite a common story for a lot of people that get yeah. involved in this. Yeah. So this was uh, for the people who don't know who Ben is. Co-founders of LiveWork, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So th this must be back in two thousand one, two, three, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. I think it's two thousand one, two thousand two, something like that. Yeah, really, the early days of the, uh, the field. Yeah. All right. So, um, in the show, we have a question format that is based on co-creation, as we believe in co-creation and service design. And uh, maybe uh, not all the people who are watching this episode have seen any of the previous episodes. So let's explain shortly how it works, right? I have three topics uh, on a stack of papers and you also have a stack of papers, right? Can you pick uh, one that is in front of you? I can indeed. Uh, I'm on, uh, yeah, can I so, use them more than once? Yeah, the, you have a why and I call these question starters, which you have. 
I'll pick a topic and you'll uh, associate the question starter with that and then you have to answer your own question. It's that easy. Okay. Ready? Easy enough. Easy enough. So uh, um, I'll start with um, the one that puzzles me the most because I have no clue what you mean with this one and it's called fractal nature. What is the question <laughs> starter that goes along with that one? Mm, actually, right. no, I won't do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Look, we'll, we'll say this, actually, because maybe how much is, is partly what that relates to. So what is the question based on how much? <clears throat> how much can service design achieve? And how, actually, there's one that's missing here, which is how far can it go? Um, and that's the, the question. And that's what relates to the fractal nature of service design. Explain because I'm still puzzled. <laughs> so um, I did a talk um, for uh, Rosenfeld Media is a, a, a sort of webinar, and it was about the future of UX or UX futures. Uh, and in fact, it's a talk I'm going to do here at Service Design Australia soon. And it is uh, about the powers of ten. Now I don't know if people remember this. Uh, there was a, a very famous video, uh, film, and a, a book actually by the Eames, uh, Rand Charles Eames, um, about the. Uh, they start with a camera above someone's hand, and they zoom out one meter, and it's someone lying on a picnic blanket in a field. And then they zoom out one uh, another another pair of tens so at ten meters, a hundred, and very quickly yeah. they're in the they're in the universe and solar system. And then they go the other way and they go right back down to the atomic level. And it was a really fascinating idea of just adding a zero each time mm -hmm. and then illustrating it. And um, my dad had this book when I was a kid and I used to love looking through it. And one of the things I often think about with service design is how fractal it is. So you can look at um, a small part of a service. Let's say, uh, let's use a, a telco because it's a good, a good example yeah. of a sort of classic service. So you can look at um, me trying to set up my um, router at home, okay? And that's a little bit of the service. Or I can look at the next level up, which is me getting my home line installed. Mm. Or I can look at the next thing up, which is perhaps um, my whole kind of ecosystem mm -hmm. with that telco. Mm. Or the next uh, level out, might, you might think about the entire sort of life cycle or lifespan yeah. I have as a customer. Or you might think of my entire lifespan as a human being. Right? And then... A telco obviously has existed beyond before I was born and it will exist after I've, I've died. So one of the things that happens, I think, with service design that's um, a really tricky thing to navigate is what level of that kind of fractal universe are we at? Because right down to uh, an individual touch point, so yeah. the buttons on an interface, Yeah you're still affecting the service. So if one of those things doesn't work and it causes a lot of people, or a classic one with telcos is people don't understand their bills, right? So if people don't understand their bills, loads of people call the call center to query it. It costs the telco a lot of money. But then at the same time, um, it's blocking up that call center for other people who might actually have a different kind of problem. And so often the, 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 it's the butterfly effect, right? So you have one little thing here and, it, you, and it's causing a little bit of a ripple. And when it's magnified across the whole ecosystem of a service, uh, it creates a lot of pain and it can be incredibly expensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, service design is very fractal in the sense that you, you kind of work out what level are we working at and then you're, you design at that level. But sometimes you drop down into the details and sometimes you blow up to the big picture. 
And you have to kind of be able to rapidly move between those um, and think in that, in that way. So, so, so yeah, you, you mentioned this as a topic that is, uh, you are thinking about. What is the question that you have about this topic? So the question is, and I don't even know if it has to be a question, but the question is, where does service design begin and end? Um, now, we work at Fjord with a whole bunch of other people in Accenture, for example, and our clients. And um, one of the things that there's often a discussion about is where does strategy start and then, then service design? And is there then design realization as a separate thing and then delivery mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. forth? And I, this becomes onto the other question, actually, I believe it's end to end, right? I think if you reposition a, um, if a, a strategist or the, the business guys reposition a brand in the market, they're redesign or they're designing the service. And if a coder down one end decides to change the wording on a button because it's too long, they're designing the service too. Um, right, they're wrapped into some of the sort of public stuff, into uh, government policy and things like that. So. My, I, I kind of don't think it ends, but I think it. Um, I think you have to have an awareness of where you are, and to have that awareness, I guess you have to understand the whole. You have to see the bigger picture. You do, and and the, the trick is also then in, in on a project is to know well what what can I actually design, and what's a thing I can actually affect and have some kind of intervention in as a designer. What stuff do I need to know is affecting my uh, gravitational field or whose gravitational field is affecting mine, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm in its orbit in some way. And what stuff is just out there in the world um, that I, I need to be aware of? Rectal nature of service design, really interesting. I think a lot of people recognize this, what you're saying, but never have put this this context that it's uh, about design of a touch point uh, to the design of basically yeah, maybe the whole company it makes it yeah, really complex also makes it super it complex. does right and so so that's and that's the tricky bit you know you, there's an expression in english i don't know if you've heard it i'm um, called boiling the ocean and um i think a lot of projects are pitched or, or try to boil the ocean like we're going to fix poverty with yeah. Yeah. service design and you, know, you just can't. So you have to work out, well, which, which bit of the ocean are we going to put in a little yeah. pot and boil? Yeah. Um, and then when we do it enough, then we have perhaps boiled most of the ocean. Um, but it, it's, it's not possible to, to do it. But I think you still need to have this way of holding those two things in your head. One, that, that detail and the big picture, but yeah. not let them kind of confuse each other. Yeah. And a lot of the kind of stress on tension on projects is people at different levels. So people think, well, we're, no, we're designing this big thing. And someone else going, no, we're not. We're designing this small thing. And as in fact, both those things are the service and they just need to know that they're at different levels. Yeah, and they're con they should be contributing to the same goal. Eventually, yeah. that should be yeah. the, the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Um, all right. You've touched upon uh, a second topic and uh, I'll, uh, I'll hold it up. Uh, and let's see if you can add a question started to this one that uh, broadens our perspective on service design uh, is end-to-end. -end. We have a question started that goes along with this one and where we can yeah. add something valuable mm. to, uh, to the conversation. So that's this one, okay? So let's go for how can we. So what would be the question? 
So how can we design services end-to-end? Um, and it, it relates to what I was just talking about, that um, there's, a, there's quite a big challenge as service design and some of the sort of projects we work on at a pretty large scale. So particularly some of the stuff that we work on with very large companies, enterprises, or with, um, with public services, which are enormous yeah. and complicated. Yeah. They have hugely um, complicated technical architectures at the back end, some things that are really kind of ancient. Um, and so there's this tension where you kind of want to do something amazing and you have this whole kind of strategy and we do a whole discovery and understand the user's needs and see, oh, well, this is where we need to be. And then you have to make sure that that central focus of what people actually need remains intact all the way through a, a process that might go through sort of a huge uh, delivery teams some working in waterfall, some working in Agile, yeah, some yeah. working in, there's a thing called SAFE, which is this scaled Agile framework, um, and make sure it doesn't sort of just get completely degraded as it, uh, as it goes. Um, so th- that's, that's quite a challenge. That's quite a challenge for um, service designers and people working in service design projects. It's actually uh, a challenge for everyone in the team because it, there's a tendency to, I say everyone in the team, I mean mm-hmm. by the, the entire mm-hmm. project, there's a tendency to fall back on the stuff you know. There's a tendency for a lot of stuff to um, fall through the cracks. And all of a sudden you've end up, ended up making a thing that isn't the thing that you initially said you were going to make. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a, a shadow of what it was intended yeah. to be. Yeah. I th- and this is, of course, a trap in a lot of projects. But do you have some... Um, um best practices or examples that you've seen where uh, they've been able to cope with this? I have some examples that I can't tell you about, but I, uh, the, this is actually one of the frustrations about service design, I find, is a, because a lot of our work is spent doing the, a lot about the thinking up front, and often the, it's quite long-term, so yeah. if, uh, if you're changing the culture of a, a company, which is one of the things we'll come to, or you're, you're um, working on a large scale thing, it's, it's years often bef- before it really kind of flows out into the market. So you can't, I can't talk about a lot of it. Um, but when it works well, there's this trifecta, there's the, there's, um, and it's, it relates completely to the desirable, um, feasible, feasible and um i've completely forgotten the other one a desirable feasible and um i'm blanking out too uh not have to cut viable viable yes desirable feasible and viable so which is design business and technical right so you know viable um you know is it is it going to have a legs as business technical is it going to be feasible and desirable is the design part right so when those remain intact and um, work across all the way through the project, then I think that's when you have the best chance. And actually, the best example I have comes completely outside of uh, service design, which is uh, the world of filmmaking. So in filmmaking, you traditionally, that's what I, what I originally studied, and I think that's why I have this in my head. In filmmaking, you traditionally have a, 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 the sort of three pillars of director, cinematographer, and producer. So the producer is the money guy, 
the director's keeping the vision, what we would see as service design vision of, you know, what's the whole kind of purpose and, of this. And the cinematographer is in charge of how it looks. Yeah. More or less. It's yeah, obviously yeah. more complicated than that. And what happens is they kind of make, they go through an iterative process. So you make the film over and over and over again. So it first gets made by the screenwriter and then it gets made again as a, as a storyboard. And then it gets made again um, in multiple iterations of that. And then it gets made again. Actually, you shoot the stuff and you, you make this huge thing and then you edit it down again. And it gets remade again mm-hmm. in the edit suite. Mm-hmm. And often it you know, takes root in the kind of public, uh, public imagination. So you get this co-created sense of what the film actually is. And what they managed to do is take a logistically really complicated process. In a feature film, there's hundreds, thousands of people involved in making it. And it's, there's a lot of money riding on it. So the business part of it is really important. Uh, technically, sometimes it's really difficult. Yeah. And they managed to keep, more or less, they managed to keep a vision of the final experience. That's what they're all focused on is people sitting in the cinema. So the money people are focused on it. Are people going to go and see this and tell their friends? Um, you know, the director's obviously focused on it. And, and so as the cinematographer, is this going to draw people in? Are we going to be in, engaged? So they managed to keep that structure all the way through. Uh, and the sort of weighting of who has, who has the most weight, if you like, and, they, and the checks and balances between them all, um, when it works well, it works all the way through the process. And obviously you hear films going kind of over budget and going crazy and the director going off, off the deep end and so forth. But um, in general, it's always struck me that they managed to do something that's quite similar to what we do in service design. And they've got a long kind of production process uh, history behind it. So are we, are we missing the director in a lot of service design projects? Or are, does the director just step out uh, of, uh, of the picture service design? So I, I know I think a lot of service designers would love to think of themselves as the director. Um, but actually, you know, the director is one piece in, in the film thing. The director is a very important piece but one piece of the whole puzzle. You know, you need to have everyone doing their bit. And it's one of those things a bit like music or playing in a band or an orchestra. You know, everyone has to do their part really well, but if one person rides over the Mm. top of someone else, uh, it sometimes doesn't work. So there are times when the director really wants to do something and the producer would just go, we don't have the budget. And they have to creatively work around it and, and they'll often come up with something better because of the restrictions. And there are other times when the the argument is, no, this absolutely has to happen. And so they then have to go and get more money. Um, I think in service design, what tends to happen is it's as if people have written the script and gone through the storyboarding and uh, started shooting and then the director just disappears exactly. and then you just That's, leave yeah, it. You yeah. know. So the, but, but everyone actually, so, so loads of people just then step out of the process yeah. and you're left with... I mean, an editor is a creative person anyway, but it's almost as though you're, you're left with, you're leaving the editor, um, or not even the editor, someone who's just cutting together stuff uh, kind of in a dark room, not knowing, is this the right thing? Sure. Uh, yeah. I need to cut together. Yeah. And, th- th- and that's something that, that we have to really watch out for. Interesting metaphor. And I, uh, I've, I've already said a few times here to our clients that, uh, if you look at your own service uh, as a movie, do you consider it to be a blockbuster or is it a bad B-horror type experience where people get into? So I think it's a really strong metaphor. <laughs> yeah. I think it's useful because people understand it from popular culture too. Yeah. 
and anything that kind of takes it away from some obscure kind of methodology uh, and and any of those things I think kind of helps. Yeah. All right. So Andy, uh, I've got one left here, and <clears throat> this one is a topic that uh, that is really a recurring uh, pattern in uh, the episodes. And you call this one "Design from Within." Yes. Um, I don't know what to. Uh, well, let's say who are. Let's go for that. As who are is my question to that. Who are or who is doing design from within? So um, Fjord do these uh, trends. We do a, a set of trends, release a set of trends every uh, every year. And they're crowdsourced from within Fjord. So we, uh, there's about 750 of us around the world. And it's always very fascinating. And one of the things that I'm involved in and as part of Fjord Evolution, and one of the things that we see over and over again is a question that starts often um, from clients, which is, having worked with you, could you teach us to do what you do? Or could you teach us to do what you do? And that ranges. So you have at one end, the, the argument for design thinking in, you know, in companies has kind of been one. Right? So there's not many people going, why should we do design thinking? Maybe at the most sort of immature end of the spectrum in terms of an organization's evolution is, we know we think we want to do some design thinking, but we, we sort of, you know, what would it look like? Yeah. Most of the time, though, they're coming to us saying, um, can, you, can you teach us about service design and, and service design thinking and doing? Right the way through to, uh, we already have a team in-house um, and we'd like you to, to assess them and teach them and, and get them to have a shared language and set of methodologies. And sometimes... Um, we want to set up a design team in-house. Yeah. And I'm talking here at sort of banks and telcos and, you know, enterprises that aren't design companies or design-led. Yeah. Uh, and so that design from within of, of there's a, there's a, I'll see if, um, there's probably the other bit is what if here. Right? So there's who are and what if. There's a question for us right, of, of what happens when, when, that, when they do that. Um, and in some respects, you know, are we putting ourselves out of, the, out of business by, by helping our clients do this? I don't think we are. Well, I don't um, think so. No. But um, the other thing is kind of who are they and where do they exist inside an organization is a thing that a lot of companies are struggling with. So uh, what um, is your current observation? Well, one thing is that um, one size fits all doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So there's not a single solution. It really depends on the history of that company and the way it's structured. We also have found that to put them in their own group, sort of as a independent department, doesn't work either. Because mm -hmm. as you, you know, the the number one thing, and all of your guests have also said this about breaking down silos, right? So to build another one with this design in it doesn't really work. Yeah. So sometimes they become a kind of hub so, or a filtration device, uh, device through, through which a lot of other projects go, um, if they're happening within a bank or a telco or whatever. Um, and they help those project teams make sure that they're, what they're doing is customer-centered, mm -hmm. human-centered, um, and connected in a service design way. Um, sometimes, so my wish for it really is that that just becomes the new normal. The new way of just it's just the way we do things and it doesn't even have to have a kind of separate name yeah. anymore yeah in the way that kind of maybe business is such a kind of 
loose nondescript word that that's just design should be business as usual right? yeah yeah that's um and until we get there we have we still have a lot of work to do i'd say yeah there's a lot of cultural change and some some industries and some kinds of uh, companies that's why the, the one size fits all doesn't really work they have a lot of different backgrounds and histories and some 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 places it's just like kind of you're pushing on an open door or there's a real desire and appetite for it within the organization. They just don't quite know how to kind of put it all together. Um, and in some cases, they, the organization just is, is really hostile to the idea. Um, and it's usually somewhere in between. So people kind of, most people want to change, right? Most people like the idea of change and like you present them a vision of what life might be like. They like the idea of it. They usually like it when they've got there. Um, what they hate is actually changing yeah. right? so, because it's a really yeah. painful, horrible yeah. process usually because there's a, a point in it where you feel all at sea. So a large part, I guess, of our work is to help them uh, take that journey and sort of hold their hand for a bit of it and then, and then gradually let go. So, so being a part of this process, what would be your biggest insight from the last two years, I'd say, to make this transition easier? Um. One is that it has to have buy-in from really high up. You can't have the C-suite kind of sending a, a message. Well, so there's often a dichotomy. So the C-suite's often sending out their kind of strategic vision message, which is we want to be customer-centric, we want to break down silos and so forth. And yet they make their staff work in a really siloed yeah. ways, in, in, in spaces that are very siloed with cubicles and, and people in different departments and so forth. And so that's... So that's the kind of body language that they're saying there, which is we, we're saying this thing over here, but actually we're not making it happen. Uh, and that needs to change. And, the, and so you need to have that support from very, very high up. Otherwise, it just gets a bit cynical. Um, and the other thing, I think, is to start small. You know, the, the biggest fear, you know, the, the classic, you know, um, a, new, a journey starts with the first step. I think the, the biggest thing that's a problem is if, if an organization or someone at the top says, right, we're going to change from being what we are now to in, it, within the next year, we're going to become completely human-centered, design-centered, yeah. design-led. The antibodies of that organization are just going to kind of react too quickly and, and lock it all down. It's much, much better to have a small success and then that creates a little gravitational pull for more people and then you, they get bigger success and gradually it just becomes the way of working. Yeah, but <clears throat> I, I fully agree with you. And this is also one of the topics I, I discussed in one of the previous episodes with Dave Gray. But the hard part about making it small is that uh, for C-suite people, uh, celebrating small successes is not as attractive <laughs> as celebrating big successes. So that, that, that's my experience, at least, that tends to slow down the process. Right, so having it's very true, but having a kind of roadmap um, then is is you know we and that's one of the things we often end up doing is is putting together that roadmap of well this is the you know what I was saying about not boiling the ocean right yeah. so this is the big thing this and this is where we're going to go to but let's we're going to go here first and gradually kind of move towards that um, then you kind of keep the big strategic vision intact but you don't try and do it all in one go yeah you know because sometimes those those managers then go somewhere else right and then and then you've got that whole cycle of someone else coming in and going oh, we're not going to do what the last guy did we're going to scrap it and you know then start again so it has to really become part of the dna for change to actually happen and that takes time and patience it yeah it does take time 
and it takes um sometimes it takes a generational shift as well i mean really uh some people have to retire you know and then new people come through and they've they've got a different kind of view of things Uh, yeah i i fully agree um andy we are uh, sort of uh, heading to the end of our talk already and um i'm um my question would be you would have to give people a tip people that want to get into service design what would be your most valuable tip for them well i'm going to steal one from a designer called brendan Dawes, um and he once said if you want to be a more interesting designer become a more interesting person because i think that most of the people who i when i interview people and the people i'm kind of looking for are have two two key abilities one is uh they don't really fit in anywhere else so almost always when someone says what well, i go so what do you do and they go well I, you know I, I i do this one thing over here but i do this other thing over here and i really see the relationship between the two but no one else ever seems to and i haven't really ever found the role that suits me um they i often want to hire them because they they kind of get it um and then the second thing is is the this ability to see patterns quickly and to uh, to understand the connections and and to be able to go from that mentally to flip backwards and forwards between that that small detail and that big picture and do it very high frequency and be comfortable kind of moving backwards and forwards those are the, the two skills and my opinion is having taught masters and bachelor students to i kind of think if you haven't already got that kind of mind uh at from at school uh it's it's pretty hard to learn it later on uh you know you can i can teach you about the service design i can teach you lots of methods i can teach you stuff uh you know to actually do the work but yeah. the, the kind of yeah. way of thinking yeah. sort of needs to be there oh, already and i ha- i haven't really sussed out exactly where it happens yet yeah so it's about the attitude yeah, it is. It's about the way you see the world, actually. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm guessing, I really am guessing that it happens at a much younger age than certainly than at university. Yeah, so I, I've talked uh, uh, quite a few times about design education, um, but maybe design education should start way, way earlier than we're approaching it now. Well, you know, John, uh, Don Norman wrote a piece recently about... Um, you know, design thinking and design, and it was talking about how designers could really do with a um, more STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math in their in their world, and kind of the way they think and stuff. And I kind of felt like he had that backwards because education tends to get rid of humanities and the arts, and certainly in places like the UK and and here in Australia, that that's happening terribly, and arguably design thinking is actually a sort of band-aid or the the lack of that at school because everyone gets stem at school it gets shoved down your throat and i think it's important i do think it's important but i think the other part's important too and so i think it's funny to see design thinking coming into business later on as as, as like a sort of compensation for that lack Mm. in school days so um if we would have to wrap this uh, talk up and this would be your opportunity to ask the people who are listening or viewing this episode right now, what would you ask them? 
I would ask them, what would I ask the people who are listening to this episode right now? Um, God, that's such a tough question. That's <laughs> perhaps the toughest question I've ever been asked. Um, I think I'd want to ask them about their, their lives, actually. I mean, I always just am really interested in people's lives and really interested in um, the way they see the world and why they see the world that way. So it's the whole sort of mental models thing. And um, the details of the kind of pains in their lives, because pains are always frustrated needs, right? And then frustrated needs are always opportunities for something. So um, I, I love hearing people's stories. And I guess I would just ask them to tell me their stories. Share your stories in the comments. That would be uh, really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's hope a lot of people do that. Uh, Andy, uh, thank you for uh, taking uh, the time in the evening in Australia to be a guest on our show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me here. I've enjoyed yeah. it very much. Uh, let's hope we meet physically uh, uh, one day soon. I'm sure we will. Thanks, uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye.